0: If you would, turn in your uh, scriptures to uh, Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is what we're going to look at this morning. Over the summer months, we've been working our way through the Psalter. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm uh, chapter 14. Uh, I think you'll find, perhaps when we read this, that it's an unusual psalm. It's not a... Most of the psalm, Many psalms you find are, you know, it's clear this is just praise to God. It's a, it's a prayer and praise to God, or it's thanksgiving or it's uh, confession or repentance, or it's some kind of lament or complaint. Uh, this psalm is a little different, has a different feel uh, to it, but nevertheless, it is God's word, and it does have something to speak into our lives about and something for us to understand and be identified with because it is scripture. We have uh, two younger kids and uh, you think about kids, particularly younger, there's, or any, any child that you have, there's milestones in their lives. Birthdays are certainly a milestone. There's uh, maybe a graduation or some kind of achievement. Uh, but certainly the last day of school is, is a sort of a milestone, and the first day of school is a milestone. Uh, it, Christmas is a day to be excited about in our family, and maybe next after that is a birthday. Maybe third is uh, the first day of school. It's a special day. Special day for the parents. It's a miserable day for the teachers, administration, because summer's over. But as a parent, we are excited for that milestone. And I can remember a couple of years dropping uh, our daughter Anna Kate off at school and uh, first day. First day, you've got all this junk that you got to bring in, particularly with the younger's and uh, all the. I mean, you the, s- the supplies that you have had to purchase. Uh, sometimes you have to it feels like you have to take a mortgage out to get all this stuff. So we're carrying all this stuff in, park, walk in with her and got these grocery bags full of stuff. And we go to her room and uh, find her place where all this exciting learning is going to happen. And we drop off all the supplies and stuff. But it's still a little early. We're a little early bird, little eager beavers. And the teacher said, if you know, you need to go to this classroom, take her down there. Because that's where all the, the other eager beaver people ready to learn are. Or the excited parents who are really excited to get rid of their kids, and so I bring her down to this room and uh, open the door and it's filled up with a lot of students, her peers there. And somebody shouts out, "Anna, Anna!" I was like, "That's interesting." And I look at Anna Kate next to me, and she's waving. And these are all her friends waving her over. Anna, Anna! I was like, "What is going on? You can't use, she's not Anna? This is Anna Kate." And I go home and I share with my wife, you know, what had happened. And she was a little frustrated, maybe more than I was. She's not here, so I can say that. She's a little bit more frustrated. Anna Kate, her name is not Anna. It is Anna Kate. We spent months. <laughs> I had her in my belly for months waiting for this day, and I named her Anna Kate. I didn't name her Anna. That's how I want her to be identified. That's how I want her to be known by that name. Scripture, in a sense, as for believers, is our identity. Uh, we're supposed to identify with it. That's what we're supposed to be known by, what it says and what it communicates to us and how we're supposed to live and how it strengthens us and sharpens us. It rebukes us, challenges us, encourages us, strengthens us, gives us a vision and a hope for where who we are and where we're going. In Psalm 14, as we're going to read in a moment, may feel how do I get this plugged into my life kind of feel. I'm not really seeing the connection, but it's God's word and it's there to shape us and encourage us. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm chapter 14, let's hear and read God's word together to the choir master of David. Verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord, verse 5. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father God, you do love us richly. And by faith, we know that to be the the case. You've revealed yourself through your word. Father, in these moments, would you sober our hearts? Would you clear out uh, all the things that we're thinking about, whether it's from the past or things coming up in the future, things we're frustrated with, things that are really digging into our hearts? And would you uh, speak to us through your scriptures? We ask in Christ's name, Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> it's another kid story. Uh, when ours were younger and. Uh, not like they're ancient now, but they're a little bit older. If you have little ones, you know probably on a nightstand or a toy chest or somewhere in in their room or somewhere in your house, there's probably a stack of books. And these books have a lot of pictures, and the words are in these huge fonts, and they're really big, but they're really skinny because you're spending time reading with them. And if you're like us, typically you gravitate towards the books that have characters that your, your kids enjoy and are relate to or just just like and when our son was younger he really liked Thomas the train Thomas the train he loved that he loved those stories loved those little trains and all that kind of stuff and there's one book I read to him a lot and this one it not by my choice it was by his choice as you'll see in a second the name of this one was Thomas tells a lie okay Thomas tells a lie Thomas is a tank engine if you've never heard of Thomas the train that just makes you normal okay Thomas, the tank engine, which was that train at the head of the line of trains that go. And Thomas, steam engine, in this book, he's had a hard summer. Uh, He's reflecting upon his summer, and he's been working really hard. We all know what it's like to work as a steam engine. He's been putting on all these hours, and he's thinking, I haven't had any fun. And fall's coming, and I'm frustrated that summer has gone by, and I haven't had any fun. Well, his boss, Sir Topham Hatt, Says to him, and says, Thomas, I've got a job for you. I need you to check out and inspect these new tracks, these new rails. There's some lights along the way. and make, Just make sure they work and make sure they're operational. Go do that. Thomas is like, okay, more work to do. So he goes out, and he's making his way down the track, checking and inspecting. And he sees a sign for a carnival, and he thinks, fun, I need to go to a carnival. And so he goes, spends the rest of his day at this carnival, and he gets back back to base, and he sees Sir Topham hat there, and he says, "You must have been really busy out there working really hard." He's like, "Oh yes, sir, I got it all done. No problems." Time goes by, and his friend Percy, who's another train, he's got a bunch of mail that he has to deliver, and he goes out on these tracks, these new tracks that Thomas was supposed to inspect. And he hits this one bend. At a certain speed and no light comes on telling him alerting him to slow down because of what's going on and he keeps trucking and he crashes. He flies off the rails and he crashes and Thomas hears about what happened to his his buddy Percy and he's just heartbroken. Not only that he crashed but he knows that it was his fault that he lied about um, inspecting these tracks and it's his fault that the light didn't work and if he did his job then Percy wouldn't have gotten hurt. And it's a book, obviously, that says don't lie because if you do, there's consequences. And it does it in a very vivid way, you know, a memorable way, so to speak. And that's what wisdom does in the scriptures. It paints a picture for us in a vivid, clear way saying this is the way you should live. If you don't, if you don't listen, if you don't understand, if you don't take this in, there's going to be consequences. Things aren't going to work out for you very well. Psalm 14, as I said a moment ago, is is hard to, to put a category on what type of psalm this is. It's kind of like the dog they give away real cheap at the uh, Humane Society or the dog place. Where you just bring it home and it's it's a mutt. It's, it's kind of a lab, but it's this and it's that. You don't really know, but it's just a mixture of things. It's hard to identify what type it is. Psalm 14 is like that. There's a lot of things you could label this as. But one way we can... Categorize Psalm 14 as, it's a wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm because it's talking about the nature of folly, the nature of foolishness as the Bible communicates it and defines it. And that's how I want to spend our time looking at this psalm. What does this psalm teach us about folly, the life of foolishness? What does it communicate to us? Three questions, the only things I want to answer from this psalm. First, I want to talk about what is folly? What is it? I want to talk about the dangers of folly and then how do we escape it how do we get away from it Uh, folly in our own lives verse one sets the stage the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt they do abominable deeds there is no one who does good here's david saying what saying that there is no god and he's not saying this personally this is not his confession but he's uh, saying this is what people are saying where? On the street corners? Uh, over dinner tables? No, they're saying it in their hearts. In their hearts, they're thinking there is no God. That's their creed, so to speak. That's their, their statement of faith. That's what they believe. And though we may not hear them say this, we may not hear other people say this, make this kind of confession, you just observe their lives and you know what they believe. You deserve how they spend their time uh, during the week, how they treat their kids or their marriage or their jobs. You know what they believe based upon their actions. And so when the Bible calls somebody a fool, they're not saying that there's something mentally wrong with them. They're not saying they're stupid or dumb or immature necessarily. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. You could have multiple degrees and the Bible will still call you A fool. You could have um, a a great job, a great income, the respect of your friends and, and neighbors and the Bible may still call you a fool. You may have a huge library and the Bible will still call you a fool. Because when the Bible talks about the fool, he's not talking about somebody who's mentally doesn't have it all together or is defunct or deficient. The Bible is calling somebody a fool as the person who has failed to bring God into the equation of their lives. The fool is somebody who says, there is no God, I can live without him. It doesn't matter if he's there or not there. I can live my own life regardless. The fool is somebody who doesn't factor God into their lives, into their creed, so to speak, into their values, into their beliefs. That's what the Bible calls a fool. A fool. A brief Bible survey. Go back in your minds to Genesis 3. Probably maybe the, the first instance of foolishness. The first place we see somebody not factoring God into their lives. And there's Eve. And she's approached by this individual. And this person says to her, he says, you know what? I know God said this to you. Not to take from this tree. Not to do this or that. But do you think you really had your best interest in mind? Do you think that's really you should really listen to that. And of course, Eve in that moment and Adam following suit says, you know what? You're right. I don't need to factor God into my life. He doesn't need to be my ultimate authority. And they disobey and they're moved out of the garden. And we're what we see today is a result of that. Maybe the height of folly you can make a case for was at the end of the gospels where Jesus is standing before this crowd and this Uh, political leader standing next to him and and he's asking them, what do you want me to do with this man who's innocent? I have no charges against him. And they cry out, what? Crucify, crucify him. We don't want him. We don't want him a part of our lives. We're not going to factor who he is, his beliefs, his sayings, his promises, his works. That's not going to be who we are. Maybe you heard the word folly and your mind went to the book of Proverbs. That book that's devoted to wisdom To giving us the skills and the art of how we should live the Christian life. Verse in chapter eighteen it says, "A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion." The fool is somebody that says it's all about me. I don't need to listen to anybody else. I know enough. I have enough wisdom. I have enough insight to make this decision, or respond like this, or to live like that. That's the fool. If that's the fool, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about living a foolish life? Why is that so dangerous? Sometimes you may hear somebody express what they believe in the form of a denial. Sometimes you may hear somebody say, you know what, I don't believe in God. And they make this this negative or this denial, it's kind of a, a confession of what they don't believe. And you think, man, this feels maybe pretty intimidating because... They're saying that and they're so clear about it. They've probably thought through that really long and hard. They have all these reasons as to why not to believe. I don't know if I could talk to them about the faith. I don't know if I could talk to them about God because they're probably just going to out-argue me. Maybe. Maybe they have a a reasons well-thought-through reason why they don't believe in God, why they don't believe in Scripture or Christ, so on and so forth. But maybe not. Maybe the reason they're making this denial is just because they fear something or because they're prejudiced towards something. Maybe their their denial, their motivation for their denial is more rooted in their emotions and their experiences as opposed to thought food, reasoning, arguments of why not to believe. Paul expresses it like this. He talks about the fool like this in Romans 1, which is probably a good commentary Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is Paul saying what, this is Paul defining what a fool is in a sense. The fool are individuals, everybody's been exposed to creation. They can look around and see that there must be something else that has done this. And they've looked at that and they've denied it in some shape or form. They've they've pushed against that. They're not going to factor that fully into how they live their lives. And you think to yourself, how could somebody deny that? How could somebody look objectively, if that's even possible, at the world around us, nature, creation, everything that's out there, and think, you know what, there's nothing there that's created this. There's no other person. There's no higher authority. There's nothing supernatural that has done this. And so because of that, I can live my own life how I want to. Maybe you hear that and you think, how could somebody believe that? How could somebody just look and come to that conclusion? Well, here's one way I've heard it kind of explained or, or argued. If you have uh, creation or if you've got the world and you look at it and you say, all this, there's all this beauty there's all this uh, skill in design, either making the body or you go out west and you see the incredible landscapes that are out there. You take all that in and say, I don't think it was God. I don't think there was a God or something supernatural that did that. And you think if it wasn't that, then you have to think, what, how did it all come about? You'd have to say, well, maybe it was some kind of chance. It was chance that provided that in some shape or form, however you want to. Explain that. Now, let's say you hear on the news tonight that a print factory exploded. So all this ink and paper thrown up into the air after this explosion. And as a result of that explosion, Hamlet was created. Or as a result of that explosion, the Lord of the Rings was created. Came about after that explosion. Or that explosion happened in this great piece of art, the Mona Lisa, was created because of that explosion. That's how it happened. And you would think something like that is very improbable. There's no way. That's, I mean, maybe like a point, point, something. Maybe it's, it could happen, but it's very improbable. My question for you is, are you willing to bet your life on that? Are you willing to bet your life that on that chance that that's how it happened? Because creation is like those, that great work of literary art or artistry that you're saying that it all it just happened all by chance it just something some force or something happened and it just all fell together like that are you willing to bet your whole life on chance maybe you'll push back and say there's no way you can't prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt by argument and by reason that there is a god you can't prove it to me in a 100% natural way I would say, you're right. I, I can't prove it to you. But I can say, this is what probably happened. There's no reason why this can't be the case. But still, are you willing to bet your whole life on chance that this is how everything came to be? That small probability. Are you willing to put everything on that? Maybe you're willing to say, okay, well, I buy into that. I could understand that. But how is it that a normal person could look around and see things in creation in the world and say there is no God, to deny that and pursue living their own lives? Well, how does Paul describe it? Paul says what they're doing is they're looking around and they're doing what? They're suppressing the truth. They're denying it. They're pushing it away. Paul is very clear that everybody knows that there is a God. Everybody is exposed to that. Not God in the sense of Jesus Christ and this is the way of salvation through the cross, that's special revelation. That's, that's the scriptures that we learn that through. But Paul is saying through this creation that's around us, general revelation, there's, there's the, uh, the, the tool, so to speak, to understand and come to grasp who he is. And Paul says what they're doing is they're suppressing the truth. The Bible all throughout talks about the, the nature of there is a creator and there is a creation. God alone is the creator, and we are the creation. And God has created us in such a way that we live in relationship with him. He's the one with all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the understanding, all the love, all the grace. He has all that, and ours is to live in response to that independence upon him. And somebody can look at all these things, look at God as the one who has created everything, and they suppress or they deny the truth. Why? Because if that's the case, if somebody is in charge, it means somebody else has authority over me. It means I have to change. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to change. I don't want to be different. I want to dictate how I live and what I do, and I don't care about the consequences. This is what I want to do, and this is why I want to do it. If I admit that there's a God, somebody that's created everything then I have to change. I have to come underneath that person's authority. And David here is helping us to see that this is what the fool is saying in their heart, that they are living for their own self-interest. They're living for themselves. Now, some of you probably think, amen, brother. I, get, I hear you, man. I, I live in this culture, and I look around, and I see the godlessness that's out there, and I see what's going on the cable news. And I hear about what's going on in the papers, and I think that is the problem. People are not factoring God into their lives. They're living like fools. Yes, but at the same time, we are just as guilty. If being a fool is not factoring God into our lives, then we are guilty of that. Because we all have moments, we all have corners, we all have relationships, we have things going on where we are not factoring God into our lives, where we are not submitting to his authority, where we are not willing to change. And the Bible says to us that you are living like a fool, that you are denying me on that level. How do we get rid of this? How do we free ourselves of this? How do we deal with the folly in our own heart? The first thing we have to do is we have to work under a couple of assumptions. And one of those assumptions is that all of us have this characteristic of foolishness. Now, when I say that, I can hear some of you say, yeah, I know, I'm a fool. I'm just an idiot sometimes, and I do dumb things and immature things. Yes. But do you see your foolishness? Do you see the the things that you do? Do you use that kind of to just explain away who you are, or do you take it much more personally? And do you take it to the level where you know that you have hurt God on a significant level? That you're accountable to those things, those actions. That those things aren't just a way to explain, away, just to keep on being foolish. But that's a real problem. And there's a real danger to that brokenness and to keep living like that. Verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on, ch- on the children of a man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Can you picture this? God kind of leaning over uh, the edge, so to speak. He's looking down on his people, on creation. And he's looking to see, is anybody out there looking at me? Is anybody seeking me? Is anybody living a good life, so to speak? Is anybody uh, obeying me? And of course, as he's looking to see that, he's disappointed because nobody is seeking God. Nobody's seeking God in a way uh, that God wants to be sought. There may be people saying, you know, God, will you really help me with this or that? But nobody's going to God. I think what the psalmist is alluding to, with the purest of motives, without any kind of selfishness, only seeking God to to seek God himself because he's worthy completely, not trying to get something out of it. If these words sound familiar to you, because it's what Paul uses in his defense of the gospel in a sense, his description of sin and how it's so universal, he uses these same words in Romans chapter 3. And you go to the end of that, that folly, if we're going to put an end to folly in our own lives, we have to see and have to admit that I am a fool, that I do foolish things. There are, are areas in my life where I don't factor God into. In fact, there may be areas in your life that you even, aren't even aware of, that you're doing these things, that you're leaving God out. It's not even occurring to you. And the only way to escape that is to come with, sense of humility and say, God, I can be a fool. This is dangerous. This is wrong. This is sin. You don't like this. And I want to correct it in light of all your grace you have shown to me. What's the mantra of wisdom? If we open up Proverbs and look at chapter one, what's the verse that sticks out? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom says, factor God into your lives. Remember his promises uh, a couple moments ago when I, when I prayed, there is no room for us to sow in self-pity and despair. If the cross is real and God is really gracious and he's really your loving father, there is no room to be without hope. There's no, no place to factor him out of that in your lives. What corner of your lives are you forgetting about God? What relationships are you forgetting about God? What values are you holding to where you're forgetting about God? What on your schedule and what you're doing and not doing are you doing without God in the picture? Because if God was there and God is there, it means change. To admit that we're fools means that we need to change. How do we change? What does it look like? Verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. What is Zion? What is that place? It's a place where the temple is. It's a place where, where God meets with his people. It's a special place, but it's also a bloody place. It's a place that, that smells like blood, smells of sacrifice. It's a place where people who know their foolishness, who know their folly, they bring their sacrifice, men like David, and they go to the temple. And they ask for forgiveness, and God meets with them. In that moment, seeking change, God does not feel like a threat to them. He feels safe. He feels loving. It's why we don't want to change. God, I don't want to give up on this. And if you bring change into my life, it feels threatening to me. It feels awkward. I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to feel insecure. I don't want to feel um, out of control. But if you want to deal with your folly... You've got to go to God. We do the same thing that that David did in the Old Testament, except it's in a different environment. We don't go to the temple. We don't bring a a sacrifice with us, but we go to the cross. We go to Jesus himself. We say, Jesus, you are that sacrifice for me in my place, for my folly. How did Jesus die? He died as a fool in everybody's eyes. in that weakness, that giving up. That being crucified, that moment of humility, he died as a fool for people like us who are fools. It's it's the bridge for us to move past living for ourselves when we move towards God. He's not a threat to us. He's forgiven us. It's all taken care of. He offers us grace and love and he invites us to himself so that we can change, so that we can be different, so that we can bring him glory and honor. He's been that gracious to us. Are you willing to bring your folly to him? Will you pray with me? Father God, we ask for eyes of of humility, eyes of self-examination, to think about our lives, our hearts, and what's really there? Would you give us uh, the courage to ask hard questions about ourselves? To find those those moments and those spaces where we don't look to you, where we don't factor you in, where we deny you on some level, in some form, in some manner. We need your help. More than that, we pray that you would point us to the cross, to you who died for us. You gave up everything. Father, may that stir us, may it change us, may it make us want to be a people who are truly wise. We ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.